Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. If you haven't already, I invite you to open with me to that passage our friend Steve just read, 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're finishing off the first chapter of 1 Peter, looking at verses 13 through 25. And as you're opening your Bibles to that passage, I, w- I would like you to think with me on uh, these four introductory questions. Number one, what do you hope in? What do you look forward to throughout your day that gets you through the day? What do you look forward to in the future? Two, who or what do you separate from? Sort of negative influences, certain kinds of people, certain parts of town, certain political parties. Who do you separate from? Three, who do you or what do you fear? Loss of influence, negativity, loss of approval, losing a loved one, a family member, rejection. For who or what do you love? What do you sacrifice for? Who do you sacrifice for? Who do you or what do you seek the good of? Who or what do you give yourself to? And I think as we keep those questions in mind, as we look through the passage today, those questions will be answered. And I pray that by God's grace through this message that we will be encouraged that uh, the gospel will be presented clearly, that you will be equipped, that by the power of the Spirit and God's graciousness and goodness, he will grant us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things out of his law, out of his word, uh, that we would move forth seeing the gospel as more sweet, that we would love God more dearly and seek to live out in obedience more devotedly, with more commitment. Amen? Amen. That's where I'm going this morning with the passage. Uh, Now, before I again, on a side note, I want to say that... uh, as we study through passages of Scripture, the Bible is so rich that you could probably devote, you know, 10, 12 weeks to a chapter in a, in a part of the Bible. There's guys who preach through uh, verses at a time or words of verses at a time. Uh, so there's a lot of richness in the Bible. And if there's something that I don't cover today or you think uh, you want more explanation in detail, you have questions about it, uh, anytime that you have a question after a sermon, I would love to meet up with you after uh, the gathering. If you want to schedule a time to meet during the next couple of weeks, schedule a phone call. I would love to talk with you about uh, God's word and, and answer any questions that I might have or, or point you in the direction uh, of someone who might have the answer to your question if I don't. So what Peter lays out in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25 is the outworking of the content he has already explained in the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1. So, in other words, if the promises that are true, as he listed out in 1 Peter 1 uh, through verses 12, if they are true, how then shall we live? What is the outworking of those realities? How should this affect the way that we live? This is cued in by the, the, the word that is used at the very beginning of verse 13, therefore. Now, if you haven't heard it yes, yet, let me introduce you to a very cheesy uh, Bible teacher idea or thought. It's cheesy, I get it, but I think it's important. When we see a therefore in the scripture, we ask, what is it? Therefore. Okay, yeah, some guys have heard that. I can tell how excited you are about it. (laughs) But it's important. What is the therefore, therefore? Why does he say therefore and then continues his train of thought? Because he's building upon the argument that he has already made in the first part of chapter one. So, according to God's great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, who by God's power you're being kept through faith for this inheritance. 
See, so because of those realities, because if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials so that our faith is tested and proven genuine, will result in praise of the honor and revelation of Jesus Christ because of the privileged time we live in. We saw that last week, that the prophets from old longed and inquired carefully about this. It says even angels longed to look into such things. Like this is the privileged salvation that we have that angels are looking into because of these realities. Therefore, here are the commands. And Peter lists out four commands in this passage that we'll look at. But this, I think, is important that we keep at the forefront of our mind because this is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Realities that are already true, that have already happened, lead to commands and obedience. Make sense? So we're not giving these commands so that we're saved. We're not giving these commands so that we get a great inheritance. We are given a great inheritance, therefore we are to live in light of this as God's people. This is the uniqueness and the reality of the gospel. We obey because we are accepted. We're not earning this inheritance. We're not earning God's mercy. It's given to us, and we live out of these realities. Amen? Amen. So therefore, preparing your minds for actions. Now, in the Greek, this, this phrase literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Now, for many of us, I don't know if we do this often. So this, this was an ancient idea concept, an idiom in the time of that day where men and women both wore long clothing. They had dresses, skirts that would inhibit them from moving quickly. I'd never worn a dress, but I imagine it's hard to run in them, especially if they're very long. Ladies, for to agree with me? Yeah. So what they would do to run is they would pull up the length of the clothing, the robe, the, the skirt, the dress, and they would pull it up and then tie it, tie a belt around it so that they could move freely. So he's talking about, this is called girding up your loins. And what Peter's saying is, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, you could say, uh, an expression that we would use is like, roll up your sleeves. Okay, get ready, be prepared, be alert. Peter is saying that we need to be alert in the way we think and what we think if we are going to live the Christian life correctly. If we we're going to live and walk in holiness, we need to think correctly. We need to be alert. And not only alert, but it says being sober-minded. Now, the opposite of sober is drunk. Okay, we don't want a drunk mind. And now, I think this passage clearly forbids uh, physical drunkenness, but I think it would be a disservice to end there, right? What does it mean to be sober-minded, not to have a drunk mind? Well, let's think about the effects that alcohol has. What does alcohol do? Clouds judgment. Okay, it leads you to do things that you would normally never do. It dulls your mind. It uh, causes you, impairs judgment. You don't think right. So having a drunk mind is anything, is having a mind that has been intoxicated, affected, deadened, numbed, restricted from right thinking, from Godward thinking, from alert thinking. So you can have a drunk mind with a lot of things, not just with alcohol. We don't want to let our minds be drunk, lazy, drowsy, careless. We don't want to set our things or have our minds lulled to sleep by deadening outside sources. A sober mind, uh, we want to have a sober mind that takes every thought captive. What are some things that could lull our minds to sleep? Yeah, excessive television, excessive entertainment, YouTube, sports, video games. That's also a good one. We don't want to have drunk minds. We want to have a sober mind. We want to be alert. 
Oftentimes, I think the problem with the drunk mind is we don't often realize it because we are drunk. So we need others to help us with this. We need to have prepared, resolved, renewed, controlled minds that think rightly. So therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't, be a, don't have a drunk mind. Be alert. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at Jesus Christ. The future grace that will come when Jesus comes again, his soon return to bring ultimate final blessing. That's what Peter is saying, set your hope on. In this way, I think what Peter is trying to do is, is get us and get the elect exiles in this time to have a functional hope. Say, set your hope fully on this means that it will affect the way that you live, the attitude that you have, the decisions that you make in light of this final and future reality. So we want to root ourselves in the firm foundation of future grace. And we saw from the first passage in chapter 1, or the second passage, excuse me, 3 through 12, that this future grace is not going anywhere. This inheritance is not going anywhere. It's secure, it's undefiled, it's undiminished, it's imperishable. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. This is why Christians have the most secure, rooted, firmest foundation for their hope. Right? Because we know you trust in attaining the perfect spouse. Right? You're single and you're just looking. If I just had a spouse and I hoped in that, man, you're going to be disappointed. Just ask the married people in the room. You hope in having the perfect, healthy family. Sickness, separation, strife conflict that's going to crush that. You hope in kids and infertility will crush you. Kids that don't behave the way that you want them to, kids that walk away from the faith will crush you. You'll be on an emotional roller coaster ride. You put your hope in yourself. You'll become smug, arrogant, self-righteous. You put your hope in pleasures, sexual indulgence. You're always going to be left wanting more. You're never going to be fully satisfied. It's going to be fleeting. You put your hope in your job or career success, that hope can be crushed by your boss by a bad manager. Christians are those who hope in the future grace of God that is the living, secure inheritance coming as a future revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's set our hope fully on this. And this hope not only encourages those who were suffering at the time, but it should reorient the way that we live. We make decisions in light of that future reality. So we may paraphrase this first sentence. Gird up your minds. Be ready to think on God's word and obey him at once. Then, while continuing to be spiritually alert, begin to expect eagerly and confidently that you will receive great blessings from God when Christ returns. And, and this verse, verse 13, serves as the hinge between 3 through 12 and 14 through 25. So because of this hope, and we're setting it fully, then follow three more commands. How we're to relate to God, how we relate to others, and how we relate to one another. These three commands we see, be holy, in verse 15, conduct yourself with fear in verse 17, and love one another earnestly in verse 22. These are the three commands. All the other stuff is, is they're participles, they're arguments that are built off of these commands. And this is what we'll look at as we go through the passage. So verse 14, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Notice how Peter describes the elect exiles. Obedient children. Right, this, is, this brings us back to what Peter said at the beginning of 1 Peter when he says, to those who are the elect exiles in Pontus and Galatia, according to the foreknowledge of God, for obedience. So these elect exiles are chosen for obedience. Therefore, those who are chosen are obedient children. This is, what, this is, this is identity that he's, that he's 
reminding the people of, you are obedient children. The new birth that God given you has given you a new identity. You are God's kids. You are his child. He is your father. You have now a new family. And the next phrase says, do not be conformed to the uh, passions of your former ignorance is actually a participle in the original language. So in the Greek, another way of saying that would be as obedient children, not conforming to the passage of your former ignorance. It's not a direct command. But from this, we get the idea that the passions that we once had before we were saved, before we met Jesus, should no longer be the ones that we have now. The passions of our former ignorance should no longer be the ones that we are walking in now. The things that we, should, we were passionate about before we met Jesus should no longer be the things that we were passionate about after we met Jesus. When God, according to his great mercy, grants repentance and faith, he causes someone to be born again. He gives them new passions. This is my understanding of salvation from the scriptures. That salvation is not an affirmation of doctrine and facts, simply. It's new desires, new passions. I've got a new passion for someone and something that was different than before. So I think practically what this means is that you don't just decide to become a Christian. God gives you a new desire for him. You fall in love with Jesus. That's what happens. You don't just decide one day, well, Christianity makes sense to me. God seems like a good God. The gospel makes sense. I think I'll believe in those. I'll adhere to those truths. God in his great mercy grants you new passions. So you love God. You obey him. You know him. You seek to glorify him. One day, Jesus to you was boring. You, you didn't prefer Jesus. And then you were born again, and now you love Jesus. These are the new passions that God gives us in the new birth. If you are a Christian here this morning, I think it'd be helpful to think about this in this way. When you tell your story, are these the words and languages, the phrases that we use? I think that's helpful because oftentimes, I've, I've, when I've been around other Christians or other, in other churches, people can share their testimony or story, and they are presented as the hero. I made the decision. I did this. I was superior or greater than others. It's not directly what they're saying, but in telling their story in that way, they are presented as the hero, not Jesus. So when we think about our testimony, even if we remember the moment or not, this is the reality of what happened. We were conformed to the passions of former ignorance. And God, in his great mercy, has saved us and given us new passions. I think it'd be helpful to tell our story in this way. I was enslaved in sin. I was molded, conformed to sinful passions. I was ignorant. I was destined for hell and for death. And yet God in his great mercy caused me to be born again. The gospel was proclaimed to me. His spirit invaded my heart. He gave me new passions and now I want to follow him. That's what's happened. That's the new birth. And as obedient children who are not conformed to the passions of former ignorance, Peter then commands, be holy in all of your conduct. He quotes there Leviticus 11.14, says, as is it written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holy, if you define it, would mean utterly unique, set apart. God is totally different than anyone or anything. He's set apart. He's holy. And when God says I am holy, he means I'm separate from sin 
and I'm devoted to my honor and my glory. That's what holiness means. When God says, I am holy. And you read throughout the Old Testament, you see the laws that were presented around God's holiness, and this is what you see. Things that were declared holy were set apart from sin and set apart for dedication, for service, and glory for God. That's what holiness means. So the argument that Peter is laying forth is that as God is holy and he has called you to himself, be holy. As God is holy, he has called his elect exiles to be holy. The first point, if you're following along on the outline, the the sermon outline in your notes, as God is holy, he has called his elect exiles to be holy. Peter also describes God as father in the next couple of verses. So you heard the phrase, like father, like son, right? Christians are to be like their dad. They're to resemble the family resemblance, the family name. They are to reflect the true character of their father in heaven. As God is holy, be holy. Now, again, it's worth noting that we're not saved because of our holiness. God saves us, makes us holy, and calls us to be holy. So our holiness is coming from an outflow, an overflow of this gospel reality, of the truths of who God has already called us. So another way of thinking about this is that as God sets apart his children, he then tells them to live as set-apart people. This is a unique reality of the Christian faith. Be who you are. In the Christian faith, we are becoming who we are. As God has set you apart to be holy, be holy. As you are, be be holy. A way of thinking about this uh, in illustration, our, our metaphor would be uh, if, you, if you were a parent looking to adopt or uh, looking to get into the foster care system and you wanted to a- adopt a child. And for whatever reason, your heart is drawn to this child who has uh, come from a very rough background, violence, abuse. They've learned very unhealthy patterns of behavior yet your heart is drawn to them and you love them. Now, you are not going to adopt that child because of their good behavior. You love them. So the obedience that you're hoping to instill into that child is as you already love them. So the parenting would look something like, hey, I know this was the way that you were born or raised. These are the patterns of behavior that you learned, but this is not what we do as an Engelhart. You have a new name. You have a new way of life that is healthy these unhealthy patterns of behavior that you learned, I want you to flourish in relationship with me as my child. That is what God has done. This is how we think about obedience. Your former pattern of living that was ignorant, that that Peter lists as futile. Futile means empty, devoid of significance, point, or benefit. These futile ways that we are in, he has called us out of that and said, now you have a new path, you have a new way to live, you have a new father, you have a new way of life. That's the beauty of the gospel. As God is holy, he has called his elect exiles to be holy. And not just to be holy, but it also says there, in all of your conduct. Now, this is a junk drawer phrase for meaning everything you do. In everything you do, be holy. All things, all the time, everywhere. All of your conduct means uh, the pattern of life. And this is a phrase that is common to Peter. It's actually used eight of the 13 times in the New Testament are found in First and Second Peter. And in First and Second Peter, he uses it either to refer to the evil pattern of life of unbelievers 
or the good pattern of life for believers, which is intended to lead to the salvation of others who observe it. That's what conduct means, the pattern of life. So elect exiles are to be utterly, completely different in everything that they do. Sometimes I think we can think about holiness in regards to just being set apart from sin. So we can base our decisions or live our lives in such a way that our goal is really avoiding sin. Just We want to get bad things out of our life. We don't want to do bad things. We have kind of like an avoidance ethic. So we'll even ask questions such as, well, what's wrong with it? When it comes to making decisions, what are we doing? We'll ask, well, what's wrong with it? But being holy does not just mean set apart from sin. It means set apart to God and for God and by God. First, uh, Peter explains later in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So being holy as an exile means, yes, we hate sin. We want to get rid of sin. We want to cut it off. We want to get get it out of our life. But at the same time, we want to dedicate ourselves to the glory and honor of God. We are set apart from sin to God. This means when we're thinking about the way we live, the patterns of our behavior, and we're reflecting upon what we do, we don't ask the question, what's wrong with it? But how will what I am doing glorify God? How will what I'm doing grow my affections for God? And if we are honest with ourselves and we realize what I'm doing is not to the glory of God, we don't do it. If we cannot glorify God with something that we do, we don't do it. As Peter will continue through the letter, our holiness in all of our conduct is intended to lead others who are watching the way we live to have faith in God, to glorify God. So in other words, our holiness is also intended to have an outward focus. The way we live is intended uh, to reflect who God is. So holiness is not necessarily not just moral purification, right behavior. It is joining God in right mission. We were to deflect God in his sending missional nature. Our holiness in our conduct is intended to have an outward focus. I was talking with a friend earlier this week and thinking about it this week. Why, why when God saves an individual... Does he not just kill them on the spot and take them to heaven? If it is just about salvation and being declared righteous, why does he intend, often, does he let us live? Does he call us to live? What's the point? What's the purpose? What's the intention? And all the way through our Bibles, we see that God calls his people to be a reflection of who he is to a watching world. So God's people are to reflect who he is to the nations. Therefore, our holiness is always to have an outward focus, an outward aspect. God has ordained to show the world what he's like through the lives of his people. So the point of holiness is not feeling good about ourselves. The point of our holiness is not to judge ourselves based on how other Christians are doing, and we feel better because we're more holy. The goal, the point, the intention of holiness is outward. Showing who God is. 
think it's a great tragedy when we focus simply on avoiding bad things and not simply seeking to glorify God in everything. It's a tragedy when the name of holiness, we become isolationists. We create our, our bubbles of protection. We close ourselves off from society and neighborhoods and bad things and bad people. I don't think being holy means we close ourselves off in our suburban homes and judge the world from our couches. Being holy does not mean we spend all of our time with Christians and we have no non-Christian friends, no meaningful relationship with those outside of the faith. Holiness is intended to have an outward focus. Amen? Amen. Let's think through this practically. I know I'm camping on this a lot, but this really stood out to me this week as I was studying be holy in all of your conduct. Let's, let's think about this practically. Let's, in, in regards to our house, what does it practically mean for our house to be set apart? Does it simply mean we want to avoid bad behavior in our home? Don't want to have adulteries. Don't want to have immoral sexual behavior. Let's avoid pornography. Let's make sure there's no bad things in our house. And we're good. Is that all that holiness is? Or is holiness, we want to set our house apart from sin, and we want to dedicate it to the glory and honor of God? This means I think our homes should be beacons of hope and holiness in our neighborhoods. Practically what this really means is if we are, to, if we are moving out of our neighborhood, our neighbors will miss us. We want to get really practical. We move jobs, our coworkers are going to miss us because of our uniqueness, our set-apartness, our distinctiveness, our holiness, the way we're reflecting God, we're being beacons of hope in our workplace. Would that be a reality for you? Friends, let us not isolate ourselves in the name of holiness. Let us grow like God in moral purity, godly character, and an outward focus, and a desire for others to see God through the way that we live. Amen? As God is holy, he has called his elect exiles to be holy. And holiness means set apart from sin, set apart to God, and set apart for God. Point number one. Number two gets at the reality of not having a flippant attitude in regards to this. This is where he goes in verse 17. We're not to have a, a willy-nilly uh, feeling towards sin and evil and holiness. We're not supposed to shrug this off. It's just, oh, this doesn't really matter. Holiness matters. In verse 17, it says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile. Now notice the key word in verse 17. You're into underlining or circling or making notes in your Bible. Underline impartially. What I think Peter is trying to balance out the scale or get us to see is that because God is our father, because God is our judge, we don't get extra privileges. We don't get a blind eye. We don't just say, well, my dad's a judge. He's going to let me off the hook. It doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter if I seek to obey God or or my com the commands that he lays before me, it's like, you know, God's, God the Father, he's my dad. My judge is a dad. Uh. I'm going to be left the hook. <laughs> That's not what it means, because Peter says he judges impartially. Yeah, we're not entitled. We can't think because God is our Father, he's going to turn a blind eye to the sin of his kids. The Bible is clear. God will judge everyone according to their deeds. 
Romans 2.6, he will render each one according to his works. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, don't hear me say that for Christians there will be condemnation. Okay? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, there will be a judgment. We will be judged and rewarded based on how we live, how faithfully we steward what God has given us in this life. And if that doesn't lead to a sober mind and to holy living, that's scary. I think our hearts have become cold. God will render each one according to his work. So conduct yourselves with fear. And notice the connection with conduct of holiness. He says, uh, be holy in all your conduct and conduct yourselves with fear. There's a connection there. And fear in regards to this is fear of displeasing God, fear of his discipline. As Will had described earlier in Jonah, fear is submissive awe, leads to worship, reverence of God towards his holiness. So as God is judged, he has called his elect exiles, point number two, to conduct themselves with fear. Uh, one commentator said it like this, and this is a lengthy quote, but I thought it was, is helpful and beneficial. It says, although today many dismiss fear of God as an Old Testament concept, which has no place in the New Covenant, they do so to the neglect of many New Testament passages and to the impoverishment of their spiritual lives. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude, the sign of a New Testament church growing in maturity and experiencing God's blessing. Moreover, fear of God is connected with growth and holiness elsewhere in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 7, Philippians 2, Romans 3. So fear of God is not inconsistent with loving him or knowing that he loves us. If it were, we would have to say that the Old Testament believers who feared God could not have loved him, which is clearly false, or that God did not love them, which is also clearly false. Rather, fear of displeasing our father is the averse side of loving him. The fear here recommended is a holy self-suspicion and a fear of offending God, which may not only consist with assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and spiritual joy, but with their inseparable companion. This fear is not cowardice, it's not debased, but elevates the mind for it drowns all lower fears and begets true fortitude and courage to encounter all dangers for the sake of a good conscience and for the obeying of God. Fearing God is a way to live in holiness. Fearing God leads to holy living. It's necessary. We fear his discipline. We fear offending him. And Peter includes that phrase throughout the time of your exile to remind them that life is too short to be willy-nilly with sin. Life is too short not to care about the way that we live in light of eternity. We don't want to waste our lives in futility and sin and in disobedience. This stuff matters. And then Peter continues in verses 18 to describe the great cost that our redemption uh, came in Jesus Christ. It gives a further reason to conduct ourselves with fear and holiness because of the great cost in which we were ransomed and redeemed. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Christians were ransomed. They were bought out of sin and slavery and death, not by money, not by silver or gold, but by the blood of Jesus. Infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy. Jesus was perfect. He had no blemish of spot. His sinless life 
He died in our place, taking the wrath, the punishment that we deserve upon himself on the cross. Jesus was the worthy sacrifice. He's what's called the Lamb of God, that John calls out to him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became that Lamb, takes, his, takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. We are ransomed by the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we are to be fearful of scorning the blood, treating the blood like it has no power, like it hasn't really bought us out of our feudal life. We don't want to live in such a way that shows Jesus' blood is not that powerful. We want to live lives of holiness. A uh, pretty real and graphic uh, illustration that I heard this week in a sermon that I wanted to share with you uh, about what it means to be ransomed, what it means to be redeemed, and how we're to live in light of that is the following illustration. So uh, imagine that you have a daughter who you love. And this daughter has been kidnapped. Uh, she's taken away from you. you. You can't get her. She's held captive. And you get a note from the, the captors who say, we want this as a ransom. And in order to ransom your daughter, it's going to take everything that you have. All the money that you have, you're going to sell your house. You're going to sell your car. You're going to sell your valuables. You're going to sell your wife's jewelry. You're going to give everything. You're going to sell everything so that you can take that money and get your daughter back. And you arrange a time with the captors where you're going to meet. There's going to be the exchange. The money's going to be placed, and you're going to receive your daughter. You meet the captors. You go up and you place that bag of money. You have sold everything for a great cost to you for your daughter. And the daughter walks out as the captors release her, and they, they go to take the money bag. And the daughter walks out. She takes the bag of money, gives you the finger, puts her arm around the captors and walks the other way. That is what it means to scorn the blood. That is how we treat contempt the blood of Jesus. If we have been ransomed from feudal ways, we have to live in holiness. That's, that's real, isn't it? That should hit our emotions. This is what we are to fear doing to God giving him the finger and walking with our captors in sin and disobedience and feudal ways, the passions of our former ignorance. Peter comes back around by giving us hope in verse 20. He talks about this plan of redemption centering upon Jesus' sacrificial death. It's not a plan B. It's not an accident. God wasn't up in heaven. Adam and Eve sinned. Everything was broken. And he goes, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Eve doesn't take the fruit, disobeys God, gives it to Adam who was with her, and God doesn't say, what are you doing? Now what am I going to do? <laughs> the plan of redemption centering on the cross was the plan from the beginning. And we get that by the word foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown means chosen. Not just foresight. Jesus was chosen with a purpose. Jesus dying for the sins of his people was the plan before the foundation of the world, and it was re revealed in our time, the last times, for our sake. That gives us hope. So, number one, as God is holy, he has called his elect exiles to be holy. We are to live holy lives. 
We are set apart from sin, set apart to God. Number two, as God is judge, he has called his exiles, his elect exiles, to conduct themselves with fear. We are to fear God's discipline. We are to uh, know that we are redeemed and ransomed at a great cost. Number three, we are to love one another earnestly. Verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another for my pure heart. Notice again the connection there that we see. Since you have been purified by your obedience to the truth. So obedience to your truth is a way of saying your obedience to the gospel. Your soul has been purified. From this, your heart being purified, love and have a pure heart. Be who you are. Since you, have been, uh, since you have been purified by your obedience to the truth, by obeying the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your hearts are pure. From this pure heart, love. Love one another earnestly. Earnestly means sincere. It's not hypocritical. It's not pretend. It's sincerely felt and expressed. This is the love that we are to have for one another. And the sandwich there that, that Peter's laying out is, since your hearts have been purified, love one another. And since you have been born again, see the, do you see the argument that Peter is laying forth in the command to love one another earnestly? So since your heart's been purified, love one another, and since you've been born again. And then he lists out this other argument about since we've been born again. It says, not from perishable seed, but imperishable. Through the abiding living word of God, for all flesh is like grass, its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the argument you could say is having your purified souls, love one another since you've been born again, right? Since you have new passions, you have a new identity, you have a new family, you have a new love. You have a new brothers and sisters. They are your true brothers and sisters. But why does then Peter mention the imperishable seed? Why does he go off into this uh, description of talking about the living and abiding word of God and its permanence? How are these two related? And I was struck this week as I was thinking about this how is the command to being love one another earnestly through the abiding living word of God? I think it means this. Since the word of God is eternal and believers has been born again through that eternal word, we have been born into an eternal fellowship. We have a new family, new brothers and sisters. They're not going anywhere. This is why I think the Bible has such clear commands on making things right in the church. Because we're not going to be in separate places for eternity. This is the importance of church discipline and purifying the church and making sure we have right relationships with one another. If I got a problem with you, we better resolve that because we're spending eternity together. <laughs> word perishable, I think, takes us back to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 4, where Peter describes our inheritance as imperishable. The inheritance as being kept by God, we're being kept for it, meaning that those who are truly born again are imperishable. So the imperishable, living, abiding word of God, the good news that was preached creates imperishable, living, abiding people. The imperishable gospel creates imperishable fellowship of love for one another. The eternal, living, abiding word creates an eternal family, a community of faith who love Jesus and love one another. 
This lays the foundation for what Peter will build on in chapter 2. But the principle, the point of this is that Christian growth and living the Christian life is not to be individualistic, self-centered, and apart from community. That's not what we're called to do. Christian growth happens in the context of community and committed relationships that will start at the new birth, that will remain and grow throughout the life of a believer and remain for eternity. Let us not place our hope, our fear, our love in ourselves or in other things, but in God. Let us realize that all flesh, everything that we can cling to and hold to is quickly fading. It's not permanent. Let us devote ourselves to the living holy lives and loving one another with brotherly, familial love from our Father. As we're loving one another, let's move outward as we seek to live holy lives, moving out into our cities, our communities, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, being witnesses for God. So as God is holy, he has called us to live holy lives. A holiness that means set apart from sin and set apart to God. As God is judge, we are to live in fear. Fearful is him of God's loving discipline, fearful of offending him and scorning the blood. And number three, as God causes the new birth, as he calls us, as elect exiles, with and through the eternal word, let us love our eternal brothers and sisters with the familial love of sacrifice and earnesty. Amen? Let's pray.